0: Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker, and I'm here with Dr. Wes Berger today. He's the Associate Director of the University's Forest and Wildlife Research Center and Mississippi Agricultural and Forestry Experiment Station here at Mississippi State University. Uh, He's actually housed in the same department as me and semi-a-boss. So I get to see him really regularly, which is exciting. But thanks for coming in this morning.
1: It's great to be here, Beth. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a pleasure to have you here. He's been on the show before, uh, talking about a number of different topics like quail conservation, uh, as well as um, nutrient transport um, and in private lands conservation. Uh, but today we're going to be discussing um, the history of land, and importance of land grant universities and experiment stations. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know. I did my I did my Bachelors and masters at a state college in Minnesota, um, which was not a land grant university. And so, really, if you're not at one, it's you don't really know exactly the extent of what they are or what that means, um, the foundations that they were built on. Um, and it even took me a while after being here to figure out all of these components that fit together um, that a land grant university has. So, um, but actually. Also, how important it is as a public educational institution and for research. Um, so if anyone out there is, is not familiar with what a land-grant university is, you know, it's a publicly funded institution of higher education. Um, and, and these came out of certain federal acts of the United States government in our early history, Um and so a couple of those, you know, the Morrill Act, which put land grants into place, and I'll let you talk more about this because you know more about more about it, um, was the original act in, in 1862 to get these institutions on the ground all over the country. Um, and it's been expanded on a number of times since then. But just this incredible history that most folks, even folks who work at them, don't know about. So I think it's worth discussing, especially as it relates to conservation because, you know, it's built in agricultural sciences and land management. Um, but you've been here for a little lo- longer than I have. So why don't you tell us about your experience here at this land grant university um, and what it's come to to mean to you.
1: Sure, Beth. I love talking about the land grant mission because um, I think it is one of the most important institutional missions in higher education. And so I've spent 30 years in the land grant system, and I'm deeply committed to that land grant mission. You know, the land grant system is something that is totally unique to America. Higher education, it goes all the way back to Socrates and before, but um, the land grant university was created and evolved here in America. And now that system has been transported and imitated all over the world because of its effectiveness in producing high quality, applied science that meets the needs of people. So you mentioned the Morrill Act. The, the Morrill Act, 1862, created the land-grant system. And people may wonder, well, why do they call it land-grant? Under the Morrill Act, the federal government gave to each state thirty thousand acres for each delegate they had in uh, in Congress, and so bigger states with higher populations uh, and more land got got more land grant thirty thousand acre parcels um, than states had smaller populations but regardless every state got land grants and they could sell that land or use that land to produce revenues for the purpose of standing up universities colleges that had a specific focus now some states used those resources and invested them in an existing university and expanded their capacity other states use those resources from the sale of the, those 30,000-acre parcels to stand up completely new universities with a dedicated land-grant mission. But the land-grant mission was focused on applied science. And those early land-grant universities were often called A&M. Mm-hmm. And A&M stands for Agriculture and uh Mechanical. Mechanical, yes, exactly. (laughs) Agriculture and mechanical. Nothing like acronyms, honestly. And so it's agriculture and engineering was the the focus of that. And they were designed to do both the science and the transference of that science. Today we would call it technology transfer Mm -hmm. to end users to empower um, uh, the people to be more effective in agricultural production, in in industrial engineering, in mining, um, Mm -hmm. things like that. And so the the second kind of unique element of the land-grant university is they were designed to be the people's university. Mm -hmm. Meaning that prior to 1862, higher education was really something that was only achievable by kind of the economically elite Mm -hmm. classes higher education wasn't necessarily available to everyone and the land grant system was designed to create universities that um, the working class people the middle class could attend and so land grant systems have a trifold mission you know that mission is teaching educate the people, research to do the science that informs the practices that make us more productive in agriculture and engineering, and then service. And service from the start was a, a integrated part of the land-grant mission. It's a day we call that the trifold mission of the land-grant institution. Now, a couple other acts have followed since the Morrill Act that have empowered the land-grant university to be more effective. And so Morrill Act occurred in 1862. In 1887, an equally important act called the Hatch Act was passed, and the Hatch Act created the agricultural experiment stations within or at land-grant universities. So it built on the, the system created by the Morrill Act and it said we're going to provide funding to these land-grant universities to create agricultural experiment stations that allow these land-grant universities to hire and support scientists to do the applied research in agriculture and so these land the the ag experiment station system was created and the Hatch Act provides what we call capacity funds and that's some core funding that goes to the land-grant university to support that system of agricultural scientists working within the land-grant system and so today the Mississippi Ag and Forestry Experiment Station was, was one of the very early experiment stations created following the Hatch Act MAPHIS as we call it is more than a hundred years old now mm-hmm. and for over a hundred years we've had a single mission and that's to do the science that develops and validates the practices that informs them the production practices that make our producers and our stakeholders more productive and profitable and sustainable both environmentally and economically and so MAPHIS, Mississippi Ag Forestry Experiment Station, is a great example of the Hatch Act at work mm-hmm. on behalf of the stakeholders for whom the land grant system was created a, a third act that was equally important as these first two was the Smith-Lever Act mm-hmm. the Smith-Lever Act was designed to create a uh, a workforce trained to transfer that technology from research to application. And so the Smith-Lever Act created our cooperative extension service that now works hand-in-hand with the experiment station across the land-grant system to transfer the technology from research to end users. And so these acts built on one another, the Morrill Act, the Hatch Act, the Smith-Lever Act, And then most recently, the uh, McIntyre-Stennis Act. That was passed in 1962, so it's the most recent act. And the McIntyre-Stennis Act was designed to do for forestry schools what the Hatch Act did for agricultural schools. And so McIntyre-Stennis provides capacity funding for forestry schools within land-grant universities to um, support that core capacity to do forestry research. So collectively, these four acts have created this land grant system that is um, really the envy of the world Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to do applied research and move that into application for the benefit of our stakeholders.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm still Blown away at the amount of infrastructure it creates uh, for for us university employees to to utilize, Um, and I think it's even hard to kind of picture. So, so so that our listeners can get an idea of the expanse of this, you know, because when you say experiment station, that could be just a small plot of area where we all are doing little bitty experiments, kind of things, kinds of things, but um. What does our experiment station look like as a physical entity?
1: Yeah. And when I tell people I'm director of research for the experiment station, very often I think what they envision like, is a farm. Right. One like, farm, a few fields. But the experiment station, is, as we use the term, is a huge enterprise here at Mississippi State University. Now, Mississippi State is a big Agricultural Research Institute. We're a Carnegie Research One institution, which means that across Mississippi State, we are considered to have the very high research capacity. And we're in the top 100 universities in the country in terms of our overall research capacity. In agricultural expenditures, as measured by NSF, Mississippi State has been in the top 10 across the country for the last. 20 years, mm-hmm. 15 to 20 years. And so uh, among land-grant universities, we're a significant enterprise with a lot of capacity. Um, so within the context of that, when we talk about the Ag Experiment <coughs> Station, in terms of human resources, we have over 150 scientists who are part of that Ag Experiment Station. We've got another 50 scientists that are part of the um, the forestry mm-hmm research program in the College Forest Resources and the Forest and Wildlife Research Center. So we've got over 200 scientists who are working in ag and natural resources on behalf of the our land grant mission. The Ag Experiment Station has over a thousand employees within Mississippi State University. We're about a 60 million dollar research enterprise every year. And so half of that comes from extramural grants and contracts. We we bring in $30 million a year in support of our research programs. And the Forest and Wildlife Research Center brings in another $10 million a year from state and federal agencies and private uh, entities doing sponsored research with us. So those two units together and Ag and Natural Resources are, are bringing in $40 million a year in support of research. In terms of our physical footprint, the Ag Experiment Station has four and centers. Those are research and extension centers located throughout the state at four locations in the northeast part of the state at Verona. Over in the Delta at Stoneville is our biggest station down in central at raymond we've got central R E center and then down on the coast we've got the coastal R E center so for these RE centers that um, have research facilities farms um, and then in addition to that we have 16 branch stations so within these RE centers there are 16 additional farms that vary anywhere from twenty acres to five thousand acres and so it's a it's a big enterprise it's incredible and it's across the state and that's very intentional so that we can do work in every growing zone mm-hmm. in every soil type under all the different production systems so row crop production in the hills in the prairie is quite different than in the delta. And so it's important that for us to be able to deliver information to our producers about the most effective production systems, we have to be working in systems that are representative of those producers' lands. And so that's why we have these four R&E centers and 16 uh Branch stations spread around the state, so that we can develop and evaluate management practices within the context of local growing conditions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's, I, it's, it's incredible that as an em, employee within the system too, if I wanted to do on-farm conservation research, I could almost go anywhere in the state and and find uh, a Mississippi State resource. Or someone who's somehow connected to the system that that would allow me to work on their property, and so that's another thing I wanted to touch on because even though we have all of these resources, we still work with uh, landowners that are not necessarily affiliated with the university to do on-farm research uh, on their properties, and um, and that can be challenging. But how important is it for producers, or how you know how could a producer? Uh, get involved in university research or get involved with land-grant universities and our experiment stations. Um, Because sometimes, you know, the way we manage it on a research farm, manage a a crop that we're growing, wouldn't always match the decision-making that a producer has to do if it's tied to, as we've talked about, their profitability, uh, resource limitations that they might have, things like that.
1: You're exactly right, Beth. And there's a number of reasons why we do work both on our experiment stations and also on private working lands mm-hmm. on real farms. And um, both of them are critical to the overall land grant mission. And so our experiment stations provide us that range of geographic conditions and soil types to be able to do validated, replicated small plot research uh, in every region of the state so that we can evaluate, say, in terms of varietal selection. One of the most important decisions a producer makes is what variety of corn or soybeans or cotton to plant. Well, we have something called artificial variety trials. And for soybeans, for example, Every year, we'll evaluate 200 varieties of soybeans in every region of the state under irrigated and non-irrigated conditions um, with both Roundup Ready and, and conventional technologies. And so that official variety trial provides scientifically valid, replicated small plot research to help a producer understand how these varieties are likely to perform on their farm in that region it's really important information mm-hmm. but still that's only nine sites maybe or ten sites we might do that at across the state in their small plots when we do small plot work we try to minimize the amount of variation among experimental units so that all our plots are as identical as possible right. with the exception of the treatment that we're imposing on it. We do that to be able to isolate and measure the main effect of that treatment, say, variety mm-hmm. in this case. But it, in doing that, it doesn't really reflect how variable – things are out there in the environment. And so one of the reasons that we do on-farm work is once we narrow down the range of practices or the varieties from the small plot works that we do on our experiment stations, then very often we'll go and do on-farm trials. And instead of 200 varieties, we may work with only the 8 to 10 that we think are most likely to uh, be the right ones for that Um, geography and we'll put in those plots at a larger scale um, across a much bigger acreage on that farm in in doing that we capture a whole lot more of the normal variation in soil type and hydrology and drainage and Mm -hmm. everything that occurs out there on the farm and it gives us an opportunity to um, evaluate these technologies at a little bit different spatial scale under more realistic operational conditions than the small plot work that we do the other advantage working on on private landowners is people want to see the science that we do actually works in their backyard right and so It's one thing to say, we did this on our experiment station at Stoneville, and here's the result. It's another thing to say, we did this on your next-door neighbor, and here's the result. When people see that it works in their own backyard, then they're more likely to adopt that technology. Mm -hmm. So our our research program is equally dependent on both experiment station-conducted research and on-farm research projects.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you explained that so well because there there are trade-offs to both, right? You know, you don't sure. have that variability at the small scale, but it's incredibly in- logistically almost impossible um, and financially ridiculous to try to do all these different trials at a field scale. Like, it just wouldn't right. be um, economically or logistically feasible, so that's... Again, uh, just to reiterate your point, why both scales are important to moving um, technology from a trial period through an adoption, adoption period. Um, and you know, our, our system, as we've talked about, our land-grant university and experiment station here um, in Mississippi is, is pretty um, admirable, and, and there are other land-grant universities around the country that are even larger. Um, and even have more capacity, more students, whatever it may be. Um, and since I'm, I'm all about transparency, um, <laughs> do you think there's any downfalls to a system that large, this large, whether it's in, on the experiment side or just infrastructure within the university? And, and, and there doesn't have to have to be. I'm just kind of curious if there's some things you think that, of course, any, any company could work better, any system could work better
1: well let me answer that two ways one the advances in agriculture agricultural science Mm -hmm. that have occurred through the investments of the Morrill Act the Hatch Act the Smith-Lever Act and the um, McIntyre-Stennis Act have made the US the most productive agricultural system in the world. No doubt. It's also helped to advance every other aspect of the economic sustainability of the country. But because of our efficient food production system here in the U.S., the average consumer in the U.S. spends less than 10 percent of their household income on food. That's among the lowest in the entire world.
0: Right, especially of the developed countries. That's right.
1: That's exactly right. And the developed countries tend to spend less. They're more affluent, and they spend less of their per capita income or their GDP on food than developing countries. In many parts of the world, consumers spend 50% of their income in food, and, and we spend less than 10%. What that's allowed us to do as a society is allocate the rest of that income to other things that affect quality of life, mm-hmm. research and development, recreation,
0: whatever it co- may be.
1: food, clothing, transportation, mm-hmm. health care, all the other things that we spend. So those public investments in agricultural research have been critical to shaping the economic success and the prosperity that we experience as a culture and a society today. We need to never forget that. Mm -hmm. In the last 30 years, though, the private sector has increasingly invested in agricultural research at the same time that public investments in agricultural research have declined. And so, We spend less in public investments in agricultural research today than we did 10 years ago. And that's unfortunate, and I think it's dangerous for a number of reasons. Now, the total investments in agricultural research have continued to increase Mm -hmm. because the private sector has been investing so much. And so it's not as if agricultural science isn't advancing. Right, but it's in, it's advancing um very often because of th- that industrial investment from from big agricultural companies and frankly from venture capital today there are is billions of dollars literally being poured into agricultural science by venture capitalists because they recognize the um the both the opportunities and the need to um, increase global food production and food security and food quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And and agriculture is big business. And In fact, it's the biggest industry globally on the planet. And so it makes sense to invest in it. But that public investment is critically important. And we have made huge advances in healthcare, care because of the public investment in health sciences mm-hmm. and we are where we are today in terms of um, our our food production and the success of the american agricultural food production system because of those public investments through these acts and we never we need to never forget that And we need to to not let off the gas now as a society in terms of continuing to make those investments
0: well and so you took that you took that answer in a totally different direction than i expected and
1: what was the question
0: (laughs) right forget it it doesn't matter we need to stay where we are Uh, because the point you've made um is even more fundamentally important especially for our listeners because what we're even talking about in these land grant universities, experiment stations, these acts that you're mentioning that put the funding into um, public research and an advancement of our food production system is exactly what most people don't know. You know, and exactly the disconnection that's there between the conveniences we expect and our fundamental natural resources, whether it's in soil to produce food water to irrigate that food or provide clean water, uh, sustain our natural habitats that we all like to recreate in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're all interconnected and they are the foundation of just our very basic needs and our livelihoods that we just
1: ultimately fruit, now yeah.
0: expect and take for granted because we're too busy doing other things like thinking about our careers and our vacations and the next thing right. we will do and uh, and it, we know that's not the case for every American there are plenty of Americans that that struggle but the majority of the middle class that we have such a large middle class and upper class of um, are beyond a point of, of even you know there's plenty of still food insecurity I want to acknowledge that as well that I'm that I'm aware of it but um, there's still a disconnection for the most part uh, between where these raw materials and natural resources come in our environment when we talk about conservation um, and how that connects to historical policies and and in placement of those to support this chain reaction of development in the country.
1: Yes, and I wanna hit on several really important points you made there, Beth, and the first thing Is this there are disparities globally among nations in terms of their ability to meet the most basic need that we have as humans and and the most basic need is not 4g technology the most basic need is nutritional adequacy both calories as well as other right. nutrients that we require and there are tremendous global disparities that we need to address as a culture the US because of uh, the productivity of our agricultural system again in part largely because of the these acts we've talked about in the investment these public investments in agricultural research um, that success has freed us economically to be able to pursue many other things. And and I don't think most people understand that. Um, they don't understand that the reason that they can pursue education and car purchases and clothes and technology is because they're spending only 10%. Of their income on meeting their needs now as you mentioned that's not to imply that there aren't disparities here within our country and probably somewhere between one in four and one in five people in the United States today are in a food insecure situation and as many as one in three children may be in a food insecure situation and so there are disparities even here within our country that we need to address but it's it's across the board that success of our agricultural system that has allowed us to be the economic and technology um, leader in the world that we are today and we need to n- never forget that.
0: Right, right, and just continue to, and I think that's you know one of the driving reasons why, why we created the podcast in the first place is to reconnect those, uh, our foundations and our natural resources in this country to, to the things we utilize every day that we don't always make connections between.
1: That's right. I've heard it said that when you have adequate food, you have many problems. But when you don't have adequate food, when you're hungry, you only have one problem. Mm-hmm. And the food system that exists here in the U.S. has freed us to be able to um,
0: have many insignificant problems. <laughs> is that the right exactly. answer? <laughs>
1: that is the right answer. That's right. And it's our agricultural producers. Our farmers and ranchers and private non-industrial forest landowners that, um, that produce that food and deliver that food to the store and the restaurant and the home um, that we're all dependent on. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to to the scientific system and the education system and the extension system uh, to move that science into application, we need to never forget that there are people, real people who wake up every day with a single purpose in mind, and that is to produce the the food and fiber and fuel that we're all dependent on. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... this is like exactly the place where we could have ended. This is um, what I hope resonates with all of our listeners. And, and I think this is actually going to wrap up season one of the podcast. So, so if you're listening, um, just get excited for season two, because I think we're going to bring even more of this uh, deep conversation about, um, about conservation and how it connects to our lives and, and those people on the ground that help produce it. Uh, into season two so thank you for being on the show and and sharing all of your wealth of knowledge and insight um, with our listeners today
1: thank you beth and and i would just say if you have food to eat thank a farmer if you like clean water thank a farmer if you like wildlife habitat pollination services and carbon sequestration thank a farmer
0: today and if you haven't been to a farm you should put that on your list of vac- vacations. Agritourism is booming. Um, and and it's nice to see where, where your food and fiber comes from. Um, and then it will give you a chance to thank them, too. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for coffee and conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.